I want to thank all you introverts for immediately giving me your attention. And we're just going to wait on the extroverts now to uh, get it out of their system. We've still got a few going. We've still got a few going. Uh, last week we began just a, um, a very sort of brief teaching series called The Symbols of Christ. I'm only going to actually be giving three talks in this series. There's actually a fourth sort of um, talk or, or, or focus, but that will be at the Good Friday service. And um, the idea of this teaching series is to just look at the signs or the symbols or what, what are the practices that Jesus has given us in order to live in the story that he is telling, to live in the story of which he is the center. Um, as we, uh, as we move into Holy Week and Easter together, I think it's good to just pause to, re- to remember Jesus, to, to, to consider like what are the, the tools or the ways by which he's given us to, to know him more, to know him more intimately, to be known by him, and, uh, and also to connect with one another more fully as, as, the family, as the family of God. So last week, I talked about the sign or the symbol of, of water, Jesus in the water. Today, I want to talk about Jesus in the meal. And then on Good Friday, we're going to focus on Jesus and the cross uh, as, as our, uh, part of our Good Friday service. And then uh, on Easter, I'm, I'm going to talk about Jesus and the stone. And, um, and uh, I realized I'm, I'm, I got on the shuttle bus this morning to, to come to church and realized as I ran into the Browns on, on the bus that I was somehow losing my voice. I'm not sick. Um, Sam Biddy is also sitting. Sam, how old are you, bro? You're nine. So Sam and I have an agreement. If my voice goes completely out, he's coming up and he's going to finish the talk. And I said, well, what were you talking about? And he said, I don't know. And I said, you should probably start thinking about that. So be ready. Sam, I'm, I'm starting us off, but Sam may be, may be bringing us home today. So um, I want to jump in. I want to invite you to open your Bibles or your Bible app, probably more of you, um, We'll be using a, a smartphone or something this morning to follow along to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, many of you, uh, or some of you, may be aware that the Gospel of Mark is, is um, most scholars believe, the very first gospel that was written. And in some degree, the other gospel writers have based what they've written or their recounts of the story of Jesus off of Mark and what he recalled and what, what he wrote. Um, the pace of Mark is something that I think is, is, um, is helpful, is enjoyable to people like us with modern ears and, 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 and eyes and minds and short attention spans. I'm trying to say that in a, the most positive way I possibly can. But, um, but I love Mark's account of, of the story that we're going to read this morning, although I think it is of note to say that the story that we're going to be looking at this morning in Mark chapter 14 is also referenced in the three other Gospels, um, Matthew, Luke, and John. And you, you may be thinking, well, aren't all the stories of Jesus in all four Gospels? No, they're actually not. And so whenever we come across a story like this that all the Gospel writers felt the need to write about, to expand on, to, to sort of give their take on, we should, we should take notice and say, this isn't necessarily more important than other things that happened in the life of Jesus, but it certainly is of significance. And so um, I want to start reading Mark chapter 14, verse 12. You can follow along with me. I'll be reading from the New International Version. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? 
And so he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went to the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. Now, this will be the final time that Jesus sits and eats with his disciples before he is arrested, beaten, and crucified, making this a real pivotal moment in Jesus' life, particularly um, with his disciples. And we know that this is going to happen right after this meal because the text tells us as much when when we read further. And it's in this most precious moment where Jesus and his disciples spend the spend the evening dedicated to one thing. They dedicated this final meal together to remembering and telling their story. This is what's on Jesus's heart before he will be removed from his disciples and and suffer uh, on, on their behalf, on our behalf. But what I want you to remember, I think it's important to put this in the right context, is that the Passover celebration was not a somber occasion. The meal that Jesus and his disciples are actually taking is and, and celebrating is, is in fact a celebration. It is, um, it is the, the, the occasion that um, all of the people who had, who had made the pilgrimage from all over the place into the city that week, it was the occasion of their pilgrimage. Once a year, the Hebrew people, the, 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 the Jewish people would gather together in Jerusalem, and those who couldn't travel, they would celebrate the Passover in their own home. But it was a, an annual, the biggest of three annual meals or festivals that the Jewish people would partake in. And uh, many of you uh, probably... Oh, Gideon, you're, you're the best. Thank you. Thank you. There's a story about Gideon in the Bible, and it also has to do with water, <laughs> which I just thought of. I hope God doesn't uh, ask me to like, leave the army or something or whatever, like go home. If so, it's Sam, get ready. All right, so... Um, the city of Jerusalem is just crowded. I mean, there's just like very little room to turn. Um, the, the city just swelled. You know, New York gets like that at certain times where we're all living here and then lots of other people come and they fill the city for particular occasions or whatever and it's, you sort of, it just gets inconvenient, doesn't it? Well, that's what's happening in Jerusalem. All these pilgrims have come to celebrate this Passover meal. The meal had been practiced annually for maybe 1,300 years, over 1,000 years to specifically mark and remember and tell the story of the people's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Now think about that. By the time Jesus comes along, generation after generation after generation have been celebrating the key moment in the life of the Hebrew people, their deliverance from slavery, by participating in this Passover meal. It was a, it was a way of remembering Their story, remembering that God had chosen them, that God had blessed them. But even under God's blessing, they were taken into captivity in Egypt. But that God didn't forget his promises, though 400 some years later, after entering captivity, is when Moses shows up. God sends his people a deliverer. And through his servant Moses, he delivers his people from captivity. And on the final night of their captivity, 
the death angel spares all the sons of those who have painted the sides and the tops of their door frames with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. That's the Passover meal. This is the meal they were celebrating. It was God's deliverance. It was the idea that though the story can be difficult at times, that in the end, God is faithful and there's something to hope in. So here are Jesus, here, here's Jesus with his disciples in his final moments retelling the story because the story you live in is the story you live out. Look at verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Which they were all, by the way, dipping bread in the bowl with Jesus. But it's one of those. And the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, as in all cultures, food played a, 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 a sort of a, a, an important role in, in Jesus' day. Um, it played an important ro role for the Romans uh, under which uh, Jesus and his people were, were being ruled. The Romans obviously did not abide by the Jewish dietary restrictions or regulations, and many of the Romans' feasts, they were attached to the worship of their many gods and, and goddesses. Uh, there were times, um, these meals were times that, um, used to, for Romans to distinguish classes of people. And so their feasts were for the elite, which the lower classes would have been excluded from. In fact, in a Roman home, there would be an inner and an outer court to the home in order to distinguish between those who were elite and those who were not. And so into the, the Jewish world comes this military dominance of the Romans who cared nothing for the Jewish diet, nothing for the Jewish restrictions, but they knew well that the primary way to, de to determine who was who was by who you allowed to eat with you. And now, if you think about the Jewish culture in Jesus' day, in the Jewish culture, food and meals and festivals, they have their roots in God's word, um, that the world is a rich place filled with glory, and meals were a significant way to share in God's love and, and to mark lives with remembrance of his grace. And there's also significant dietary regulations that that marked the, the Jewish people or made them different from surrounding cultures. And We've read, those of you who are following along in the year of biblical literacy and doing the daily reading, we've read so much about those dietary laws and restrictions and, and the ways that God was setting his people apart from cultures around them. But not unlike the Romans, meals had become a way of separating people. The religious leaders, like the Romans, the Jewish religious leaders were incredibly strict about keeping the dietary laws as a way of marking those who were righteous and those who were not righteous. And so keeping the temple pure meant keeping the home pure. And keeping the home pure meant keeping the meal or the table pure and segregating the meal from anyone who was deemed unworthy or unrighteous. In other words, who you ate with said a great deal about your own righteousness. So in both cultures, meals had become a way of separating people, became a clear place of exclusion of those people who didn't belong. For example, uh, for the, the, Jewish, uh, the Jewish peoples, Gentiles who did not keep, the, uh, keep kosher, they were out. 
Tax collectors who had betrayed their nation and family by working for Rome, they were out. Sinners whose lives lacked purity, they were out. The poor, who even if they wanted to remain faithful, could not afford to keep the increasingly strict purity laws. Now, what's the trouble in all of this? Well, the trouble should be somewhat obvious. It's that God's plan is to include people from all nations. That our story is about bringing people in into the grace of God and allowing that grace to spill out onto all people systematically, though large groups of people are being excluded by the way of the religious Pharisees. Now, by contrast, I just want you to just, I want us to reflect on on Jesus for a second. Um, I've used this quote before, but Arthur Boers said, if you can read the Gospels without getting hungry, you're not paying attention so listen to this. This is just samples from Luke's gospel. I want you to think about Jesus and, and who he ate with. In, in, in Luke's gospel, it seems like Jesus is either heading to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming home from a meal, which actually makes it my favorite gospel. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners at Levi's house. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon the Pharisee during a meal. In Luke 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Luke 10... Jesus eats at the home of Mary and Martha. In Luke 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and teachers of the law at a meal. In Luke 14, Jesus is at a meal when he urges people to invite the poor to their tables rather than their friends. In Luke 19, Jesus invites himself to dinner with Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector. In Luke 22, we have Luke's account of the event that we are reading about today in Mark's gospel where Jesus is reclining at the table. But I want you to consider... Who's at the table with Jesus at this meal? For the most part, outsiders. For the most part, the poor. There's a tax collector. And we just read in the text, there's even a traitor, an enemy, who is allowed to sit and to eat at the table with Jesus. Here's here's my point. The point I want to make about that is this. Jesus isn't simply retelling their shared story. He's rewriting their story. Listen to this. Verse 22, Mark 14. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, I think the significance of what Jesus does here in this moment cannot be overstated. What Jesus does in retelling and rewriting the story is place himself at the center of the story of the Jewish people. Jesus quite boldly says that the story that has been told for thousands of years is the story about me. Jesus is retelling and rewriting the story. And as he does that, he brings the story into real time, as if on a timeline, in this moment in history as Jesus is telling the story, Whether it dawns on the disciples or not, probably not, but it certainly wasn't lost on Jesus, that this was the climax of the story. 
Jesus is both the deliverer that God has sent and the lamb who is slain by whose blood they are saved. This is important because when Jesus is arrested and falsely accused, when he is taken away from them and beaten, when they strip him naked and they shove a crown of thorns on his head, and when they drive nails into his hands and his feet and they mock him until he dies, the only thing left to cling to for Jesus' followers will be this story, his story, the story that Jesus is telling. I think this is important because I think it's the story that gets us through. I I think the only thing that has the power to get us through is when we remember and when we retell the story to one another. The only thing that has the power to get us through is the story we cling to. And I'd say the inverse is probably true as well. Some of what has been so challenging for so many of us in our own lives has been the story we've been clinging to. And Jesus is rewriting not only the story of of Israel on a sort of a macro or meta level, but Jesus is rewriting the story of every person sitting around that table eating with him. Jesus is rewriting your story, and he's rewriting my story. And this is the story we cling to. When we failed... And when we fail, and when we have been wounded, and when we can't see what's next, and when we're alone, it's this story that gets us through. Because the story we're telling is not a memorial. It is like the Passover meal, a celebration of deliverance and of salvation. Our story, I hope you get this this morning, our story, the story we're telling the story of Holy Week, the story we live in, and the story we live out, our story is a story of hope. That is the story of Jesus. Now, when we come together on Sunday mornings, we, every single time that we come together on a Sunday morning, we retell the story, and we do that in specific ways. Often the narrative sort of arc of our service tells the story of a good creation and a good God engaged with his people who fall into sin and rebellion against God, but then Jesus comes as our deliverer, as the sacrificial lamb to bring us back into, to redeem and bring us back into the story that God is writing. A story in which ultimately all things will be restored in the end. We retell the story every single Sunday by the narrative of our Sunday morning services, by taking communion together, the meal that the disciples begin to practice once Jesus has died and has been resurrected. This Passover meal becomes the Eucharist. It becomes a meal of thanksgiving. It becomes a meal of remembering and retelling the story that Jesus has rewritten, retelling the story, our story, with Jesus at the center of it all. We do that every single Sunday when we come together. We we retell the story Our senses are especially heightened this time of year when we tell the story, and particularly these defining moments in Jesus' story, his his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, which we, we recognize and celebrate today on Palm Sunday, his death on the cross on Good Friday, and of course, his resurrection on Easter Sunday. 
We gather together, and this is our job. Like Jesus gathers with his disciples and retells and rewrites the story, it is our job when we come together as followers of Jesus to retell and rewrite one another's stories. As we seek to live in the true story, the story of Jesus. So not only are we called to come and to retell the story on special occasions throughout the year as Christians, and not only are we called to come together on a weekly basis and retell the story in some form, but we are called as Christians, as followers of Jesus, to tell our story as we go about our everyday lives. It is to not allow the story of Jesus to stay in the upper room. It is not to keep the story to ourselves. It is to carry the story with us as we retell it and allow that story of Jesus to rewrite our lives when we gather together. It is then to take that story with us when we scatter to all sort of industries and institutions in the city. To take that story with us, not to hoard it to ourselves. This is a meal and the meal is meant to be shared. It's meant to be given away as our way of telling the story. All of the scriptures implore those who worship God to tell the story. The psalmist writes in Psalm 96.3, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the people. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52, but how can people call for help if they don't hear, uh, sorry, if they don't know who to trust and how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? That is why the scripture exclaims here in Isaiah now, a sight to take your breath away. Grand processions of people telling all the good things of God. And then in the gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 16, Jesus himself says to them, go into all the world and tell my story. Tell this story. Proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So my question this morning is, so how are we doing? How are we doing? How are you doing in telling the story? Story knowers become storytellers. And those storytellers become story writers. I have a crazy thought. Before Sam comes to close us out. I'm just kidding, Sam. You're off the hook. We've almost made it. What if we could rewrite the story of the city? Now, some of you are just like, okay, that, this is when I tune out, and it just, this is I, some sort of idealistic sort of view of the world and how it actually works. But no, like, just, can you just suspend that cynicism for a second? And use something we typically don't use in church, but we should be using all of the time, which is our imagination. Can you just imagine with me the, the possibility of rewriting the story of this city? What if we could rewrite the stories of the people around us who have just given up, or they've given in, or they've sort of been given over? What if we could rewrite the stories of people who have everything and at the same time have nothing? What if we could rewrite the stories of people who are on the outside looking in? I believe that we can. And I want to offer a how this morning. And there might be lots of ways where this is possible, but 
I wonder if we could rewrite the story of the city one meal at a time. I, I, I want to draw, draw your attention to this. From beginning to the end, food is God's great welcome in the scriptures. Think back with me to Genesis. The first thing God does for Adam and Eve in the garden is to show them a menu. God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat of any of these trees in the garden, except that one. Here's the menu. You can eat of any of these trees. And then we move on to Exodus, and the climax of Exodus is this meal that, that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. We look to the prophets in Isaiah. Prom, Isaiah promises a messianic banquet of rich foods that will never end in Isaiah 25. And then Jesus anticipates this, a perpetual meal with God. He describes the kingdom as an ongoing meal with God. When, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, in, in essence, he's showing us what the kingdom of God is like, which is a meal with more food at the end than at the beginning. And the Last Supper looks forward, that we talked about this morning in Mark, looks forward to the time when Jesus will eat with his disciples again on the other side of the cross and the resurrection in the kingdom of God. And the Bible story ends with a meal as we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. If we have any shot at rewriting the story of the city, we, we might be able to do it one meal at a time. Listen to author Sky Jathani. He says, our homes are to be hospitals, refuges of healing radiating the light of heaven, and our dinner tables are to be operating tables, the place where broken souls are made whole again, when we lower our defenses, when we remove our facades and our peepholes and we begin to truly present with one another, sorry, we begin to be truly present with one another, then the healing power of the gospel can begin its work. So I'm sort of issuing a, a challenge this morning. What if every small group hosted a resurrection meal? What if every small group invited friends to church next week on Easter Sunday? and then hosted a meal afterwards for those friends. And there are probably quite a few of you sitting out here and you're thinking, I'm not in a small group. Well, what if you just got a group of friends together from, from church? And together you guys invited some friends to come and to worship and then hosted some sort of celebratory meal afterwards. Or maybe some of you can do this on your own, invite a friend to Easter and share a meal with that friend afterwards. Listen, I know that that doesn't sound earth-shattering, but I think with Jesus and the meal, he's showing us how the kingdom comes. In other words, Jesus just doesn't come talking about eating and drinking. Jesus comes eating and drinking. Tim Chester writes, we can make community and missions sound like specialized activities. Some people have a vested interest in doing this because it makes them feel extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can hold an audience and lead a movement. Some push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It, it's not complicated. True, it's not always easy. It involves people invading your space or going to places that you don't feel comfortable, but it's not complicated. 
If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out in mission. And listen, I know we have a church of people who are eager and ready to change the world. But I think sometimes sort of our lofty aims keep us from seeing the opportunity that's right beneath us, right beneath our noses, quite literally. As we cook a meal together, as we open our homes, as we create space at our own tables for people to come and to eat with us. I, I used to wonder, like, how, do you, how does a, the average New Yorker get into what can be an awkward conversation with a colleague or a friend, a neighbor, about Jesus? And then I realized something very, very simple It's that I didn't have to engage people necessarily straight to their face with a gospel presentation. What I discovered is that most people are really open to being prayed for, whether they share your faith or not. That most people are going through something in their life, whether it's something difficult that they could use prayer for or something great that maybe they could stand to celebrate and thanksgiving and prayer. Asking someone if you can pray for them, guys, is so simple. And the truth is, we'll have more impact in the life of that person than what you might say or what you might do for them. Inviting them into God's presence, inviting the presence of Jesus to be with you in that moment is a powerful thing. And so I think the opportunity to open our homes to set the table, to share in a meal, and to just offer grace and thanksgiving. You don't have to share the gospel. You can pray the gospel. God, I thank you that you have come as a creator God and that you had in mind this beautiful design and we can see it all around us. We can see it in our friendships and we celebrate it today as we share this meal together. God, we know that things didn't stay that way and we wake up in a world that's full of pain. And God, some of us around this table are experiencing that pain to one degree or another. But God, thank you that you didn't leave us in our brokenness, that you are a God who moves toward our pain and you did so in the person of Jesus. Thank you for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus and the grace that that's afforded all of us to come together this morning to share in this meal as brothers and sisters. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. I I wanna tell you, I just made that up. Okay, and you can too. And you can too. Sharing the story of Jesus and sharing a meal go hand in hand. I think we can change the city. I think we can at least rewrite the stories that people are living in one meal at a time. I wanna close by giving you a vivid picture of the kingdom of God from the prophet Isaiah. I've mentioned him a couple of times this morning and this is actually from Isaiah 25, the reference from earlier. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food. For who? Not the elite. Not those that have their lives together. Not those that have figured it out. Not those that are really, really good or really, really gifted. But for all peoples. A banquet 
of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In fact, sorry, in that day, I just got going there. I just inserted my own stuff. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. As we are reminded in vivid ways this week, this holy week, of the story that we live in, let's commit ourselves as a church. Let's commit ourselves as a family to share the story of Jesus with our friends and to share it, and by sharing it, to rewrite the stories of the people around us. Let's pray. Father God, we just want to pause for a minute to allow some kernels of truth that we've spoken of this morning from your word to, to settle in to our hearts, um, to, to maybe make their way deeper into the soil of, of our souls this morning and of our minds. Father, may, may it not be lost on us this week that you have opened this meal to all of us. That you, Jesus, have, have extended an invitation that is not based on merit, that is not based on looks, It's not based on the things that we have or the things that we do or the things that other people say about us, but Father, you've invited us because you love us. And God, somewhere along the way in, in, in many of our lives, there was someone who shared the story with us. We want to just pause and say thank you for them, for a mom for a dad, a, a pastor at church or a friend at school. Father, we want to thank you for the, those that have shared this story with us. And God, in just, just a moment, we're going to actually, we're going to share in this meal that Christians have been practicing since that night with your disciples in that upper room. And God, as, as we do, would you fill us with yourself, Jesus? Would, would it not be lost on us that, Father, when Jesus knew his disciples would be their most needy, he, he didn't give them a sermon or an ideology or a plan. He, he gave them a meal. And so God, we, we come and we consume this meal, and by consuming it, we receive you, Jesus your life, 
in the bread and in the wine, your, your sacrifice, your resurrection, your hope, your glory. We consume it. And God, may we, with, a, with the motivation of the Holy Spirit within us, may we leave determined, determined to share this story. It is a meal for everybody. We receive you today, Jesus. In your name we pray.